Welcome to Fostering Our Faith podcast. Today's guest, Jelana Gobel, is a speaker, author, and advocate. Together with her husband, Luke, she parents five children ranging in age from preteen to young adult. Jelana is the founder of an unprecedented initiative that has been turned into a statewide movement called Every Child Oregon. In 2019, she published No Sugar Coating, a book with practical suggestions and insights for prospective foster parents. She's passionate about getting into the faith community as well as the community at large to link arms with the state's overburdened child welfare system to uplift vulnerable children in foster care and those who serve them. Jelana, welcome to Fostering Our Faith podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So when I first heard about you, I heard such an inspiring story. You graciously agreed to be a guest at our monthly support group, and what a blessing you were to those parents, some of whom were just starting out. You know, one of the truest moments in your newest book, A Love Stretched Life, is when you tell the story of your son, Charlie, being a foster child for the weekend. Out of our four adoptions, three are weekend to lifer stories. So I totally understand that. That Monday, when he was still with you, and then the next Monday, and the next, what were mm. your thoughts? And how do you move on knowing that today could be the last day he's here? Oh my goodness. That's such a good question, Angela. I feel like the heart of that question is really kind of one of the biggie questions that people ask about foster parenting, which is how do I, how do I welcome in and love and then ultimately let go, you know? Um, and so I think what's so unique about foster parenting is that we get these calls to say yes to kids in real time. And these are real kids needing a real safe home to go to. Um, but we don't exactly know who or what we're saying yes to. Um, and in some ways I just see that there's a lot of grace in that, because I think that if I could have like stopped and looked into a crystal ball and kind of seen everything, uh, how life would play out and the tenacity that I would need to have to be Charlie's mom. I really genuinely think I would have thought, well, some people can do it, you know, kind of all the annoying things that people might sometimes say to us, like some people can do it, but like, that's not me or, you know, God gives special needs kids to special people. I mean, just all the things that can be like said, not that I ever said those things, but I I'd heard them certainly. And I think I would have, I think I would have self-selected out and probably said, I don't have what it takes to raise a child that's going to have lifelong special needs, you know, but at the time to your original question, I, we didn't need any arm twins twisting to convince Charlie or to convince to be convinced to continue caring for Charlie at the time. It was like our privilege. It was very unexpected. We said, Yes, kind of on a whim, thinking it was a 48 hour commitment. And like similar to your kids, he is now 11 and a half. And it is our great privilege that he has stayed. And also it has put our our parenting on a very different path than we would have been on um, if we had not gotten the call for Charlie. When I read the phrase, the disruptive exit of foster care, explaining how we are called to leave our comfort zone and jump into the messiness that is raising children not born to us. I have to say that I chuckled. That is one of the best explanations I have heard. It, it sort of reminds me of these ramps that I've heard about where the truck is unable to stop and they fly up these ramps and slam headfirst into a bunch of sand and then sink. 
that is the exit I think about when I think foster care. We're just cruising along and wham, brokenness entered your life. So tell right. us about your first night with foster children and how you will never see fruit by the foot the same again. <laughs> Such a good question. Um, so my husband and I at the ripe old age of 25 said yes to becoming foster parents in the state of New York. We uh, welcomed two brothers that were part of a sibling set of 15. And just looking back, there's so much that I know now, nearly 20 years in that I didn't know at the time, but I just, you know, remember welcoming them in and, and saying like, you know, help yourself to the snacks. Like, I mean, I just was so like such an unseasoned mama to just be like, help yourself. You know, I just wanted them to feel, feel welcome and help themselves. They did in the middle of the night, like after I had just prayed that they would feel loved and welcomed in our home after a pretty um, good first day. I remember I had a, a girlfriend call me and she's like, how does it feel to be a mom? And I, you know, they've been at my house for like seven hours. And I was like, so far, so good. You know, as if, <laughs> as if like it started out this way and it's just going to keep on rolling. And oh no, it, it totally it came to a very abrupt, uh, reality check when in the middle of the night, that first night, I just heard all this like gleeful shouting. And I walked in to find both the boys jumping on the beds and throwing foot fruit by the foot, uh, wrappers up in the air, like confetti. And they had devoured like a month's worth of snacks. Um, and you know, they might've done that regardless, but I did say help yourself, you know? So, um, we just, that was kind of the, the crash course and like the selflessness that, that parenting requires just in general, but just the extra, um, care that it requires to understand that there's always a why behind the behaviors and that food, um, scarcity can result in food hoarding pretty regularly. That's where a lot of our kiddos in foster care have experienced food insecurity. And so, you know, we were able to come up with some action steps, um, that would have been unusual for a child that's always that's never known that lack. For example, we let them pick out some boxes of things, but they had to remain boxed up and they could sleep with them. And over time, they didn't need to do that anymore. But I think, um, that's, that's foreign for a lot of kids to know, like, um, that there will be, there will be food available when they're hungry. And so I think that can lend itself to like, I need to eat it while it's here now. And that was our very first, uh, night with kiddos. I just saw today, actually, a food bank in our area did a survey and they found out that 8% of the children in our county have food insecurities. Mm. And um, that's a lot of kids. That, that's is. a lot of kids. Um, and it's, it's not talked about a lot, mm -hmm. but when you don't know where your next meal is coming from and the mm. angst that it gives you, right. I mean, I can picture yeah. myself as a kid, right. And, mm. but even just the thought of like, you know, the meal that was coming up that you knew you weren't going to like, that was even just stressful, but that mm. was going to give you nourishment and your stomach wasn't going to hurt and you weren't, you know, mm -hmm. hungry. That was just, you know, disappointment. That wasn't mm -hmm. even like full-blown hunger. Mm -hmm. So as you were fostering Micah, I loved reading about Micah, the back and forth tug of wanting his birth mother, Jennifer, to do well, right? We all mm -hmm. want them to do well and see reunification, yet protecting your heart and his alongside is this invisible struggle of foster care. Mm -hmm. Two things. I too have a hope rock. My kids and I walk on the rail trail every summer and someone peppers the trail with painted rocks. 
None of them ever really stood out to me, but it was during 2020 when the whole world was struggling mm. and I was clinging to that word hope. We were on the trail. I glanced down and buried in the grass was a white rock with big black letters that just said hope. Mm. And I tell you in my kitchen window where I clearly spend too much time, that rock lives to remind me those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Isaiah 40, 31. And also we have a song that we sang to the kids every single night and it included the line no matter where you go no matter who you're with mommy and daddy will always love you mm. and that was honestly I think it was therapy for me mm. and it, it, it kind of gave me the sense of you're gonna know that we loved you regardless of where you're at and, mm -hmm. and that kind of gave me a little bit of peace mm -hmm. so Tell us about bringing hope to Jennifer over and over again and how that shapes your relationship today. Gosh, well, Jennifer and I have been in relationship now for over 14 years. We initially met at court and I introduced myself to her. She burst into tears. I handed her a photograph and um, I found myself saying, you know, I want you to know that I'm rooting for you. And honestly, Angela, those were not words that I had pre-planned. That wasn't necessarily something that I was like, okay, at court, I'm going to meet um, Micah's mom. I'm going to say, she's going to do this. I'm going to say this. It was just like tumbled out of my mouth kind of unexpectedly. But in that moment, it was, it was super genuine. I kind of feel like I'm rooting for you has been like the guiding light on our path together. Um, so as far as hope goes, you know, I think for me being in relationship with Jennifer was the first time that I'd had like a real up close and personal relationship with an addict who I cared about and grew to love. And so it was very challenging because I knew that she loved her son. I knew that she wanted to be reunited with him. I could see when they were together and she was like, you know, a totally appropriate. Her face lit up when she saw him. And so it was, it was heartbreaking for me, honestly. And I kind of walked this tightrope of hope when she like no showed for visits, for example, or different things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have hope for you that you're going to be reunited with your child, but I can't like do it for you. You know, like there's only so much. And so, you know, to be honest, it landed me in the counselor's office because it's really tricky. You know, like you're hoping the best for this child. You're hoping the best for his mother. You're like, okay, are these hopes going to like be two paths that merge in the future? Or are these like hope the best for you, hope the best for you. And these are two paths. And, and obviously as foster parents, we aren't the deciders, right? Like I almost feel like it's reading this, like choose your own adventure book. And you're like, turn to page 45 for this or page 82 for this. But like, you don't get to decide like what, you know, you're not, you're not the, you're not the player in the story. You're just kind of like there caring for the child. Um, and you know, it, it, it was hard to hope sometimes. I feel like um, that hope rock that I too have in my windowsill, uh, sometimes I just stared at it and was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to pray right now because this just feels like a muddled mess. And yet, even in the midst of it, I never wanted to root against her. I always wanted to be rooting for her. And so to be honest, you know, we're 14 and a half years in our um, you know, the ups and downs of our relationship is documented in a love stretch life, but I feel like she has also shared hope with me that it's not just been a one-way street because I think, um, I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of hope to just like wake up every day and to make the choice that for today, you're going to be clean and sober. 
And she's modeled that for me. And, you know, I talk about in the book that I, you know, kind of skeptically at the end was like, well, if you're going to be clean and sober, like, why not just proclaim like here and now, like you're going to be clean. This is your intention forever. And, you know, she has, she has through her life modeled to me that, um, that slip ups are part of recovery and that, you know, she's continuing to make that tenacious choice. Like for today, this is how I'm going to be, but I can't proclaim that that's the way that I'm going to be forever. So I feel like hope has been a two-way street in our relationship. Um, I've modeled some things to her and she's definitely modeled some things to me. And I feel like we've, we've needed each other. And that's where, um, I would say it's been like a kinship relationship, right. Where, um, I think sometimes people assume that because I was caring for Jennifer's child, that it was kind of a one-way arrow of like goodness flowing one way. And the reality is well, the reality is that we experienced every emotion under the sun with and towards one another. You can see that in a love stretch life. There's, this is not like a, like, and then we skipped through, you know, the field of flowers together, but you know, if I didn't have hope, I think the journey would have been very different because I would have felt very jaded about the possibilities, I guess. And so that was, that's kind of where hope showed up in my life. And that is to me, the most beautiful picture of adoptive and birth mom coming together. Like it is mm -hmm. just, it's such a beautiful story. I, I, I just, I, like I said, I've read the book two times now and I just can't put it down. I'm just, I'm walking around my house. I'm talking to my kids while I'm reading it. <laughs> oh. like, like mom's reading that again. Um, but <laughs> thank it's, you. It's, it's so such a good picture. If, if anybody is interested in foster care, they haven't done it yet read this book, A Love Stretched Life, because it will paint the picture that you need to see of self-sacrifice and love and compassion all rolled up into one. Uh, so I just, I highly, highly recommend it. Thank so, you. Our last son, Roman, was born with NAS or neo neonatal abstinence syndrome. He was born addicted to heroin as well as a host of other things. We're fairly sure he will eventually have an FASD diagnosis. It is such a different lifestyle to parent a child who suffers from this. And I spoke with Natalie last week on this very topic, but I wanted you to encourage our listeners with your experience with Charlie and how you navigate the waters to stay ahead of behaviors as best you can. Mm. Oh, such a good, such a good question. I would have to say, if I'm going to sum it up in a nutshell, well, first of all, I want to be very honest. Um, one of the most humbling things about parenting my youngest son, Charlie, is that um, there is no foolproof method of like, well, if you just do this, this, and this, you know, and it will always equal that. Um, no, like there's, there's oftentimes it feels patternless. Um, and, and that can just feel like you're riding the roller coaster of, um, of unpredictability. For Charlie, I think the name of the game for us and parenting him in terms of staying ahead of behaviors has been to recognize that we as parents, that the onus is on us to modify his environment as much as is within our uh, ability to do so, to set him up for success. Um, that can look like... Um, 
Honestly, Angela, that can look like a lot of different things, but I've had to do some letting go. I think prior to parenting Charlie, I had some um, notions in my mind about like screen time. Now, granted, like we are, we monitor everything that he's watching, but like we would never have any friends over for dinner if we weren't able to give Charlie some screen time, right? So when we have guests over, he is exclusively on his computer with his headphones the whole time. And that's something that I think prior to walking this journey, and of course he's welcome. And we, you know, we set the table for him. And if he wants to come, which he rarely wants to come, but if he wants, like we are, we are using every opportunity to fold in and include and welcome and all the things. But the reality is his level of anxiety directly corresponds to how many people are in the room. So we have to say, well, we're not going to set our son up for success when we have friends over, if we're expecting him to do well in an environment with like lots of, lots of talking and lots of different noises. And so that's just like one very practical example of like where my husband and I have had to say, okay, um, what do we need to let go of now? There are other situations where we're like, well, we're not willing to go down whatever that would that road that that would require. And so we're going to just refrain from that activity. Right. So it's a constant evaluation of like, should we do it? Should we not? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's less should it's more like, will our son be successful or are we setting him up to fail? And I really have to say that so much of that has, um, yeah, the onus is on us. That is why we are homeschooling our child. That's a conversation probably for another time. There's a, there's a lot that goes into that, but you know, we just realized that, um, the way people engage with our kids who are, in, whose brains um, are wired very differently. They're still, they're still a person with feelings. And at the end of the day, like having negative reactions from others is not neutral for them, right? Like they get that. And so that is ultimately why we've had to say, you know what? Home is his safe place. Of course, we're wanting to expand his world. Of course, we're wanting to stretch him. Of course, of course, of course. And so we're trying to do that within the confines of who Charlie is and how much he can handle and just kind of grow, grow that capacity. And we're seeing that slowly, but surely, but man, I think, um, and I bet you can relate with your parenting journey. I think one of the, the invitations in parenting kids like Roman and Charlie is, is ditching the narrative that input equals output that like, Hey, if I'm pouring into you, then you are going to be a shining star, buddy. Like your, you know, input and output it's equal, or I put this much in and you are just going to rise to the top. Like, you know, that would be lovely if that was the storyline. And yet I think the invitation is what does it look like for us to stay the course when we're pouring in and pouring in and pouring in and, um, the gains seem small. How do we stay the course? Where is hope then? And honestly, that is, um, you know, that, that can be shadowy for me sometimes. Like I want to cling to hope and I, and I certainly have hope and, but there are days when it's easier to see it than others. Um, yeah. And I can, you know, even yesterday I took my son to a doctor's appointment and it just was a very stark reminder of like, oh my gosh, 
you know, his anxiety can come out in some really unbecoming ways to put it nicely and, um, had to have his aide that was in the, the, um, waiting room come and help me just to help manage his behaviors. Cause he was, he was so nervous, but his nerves come across as being pretty rude. Um, so I know that as his mom, but the world looking in the doctor sitting in the room can kind of get it, but you can't totally get it until you're living it. My sister-in-law, um, brought over her new boyfriend and I realized we have a son that's on the spectrum and I realized Justin's missing Mm -hmm. and he's, um, six. He likes to escape into my room, go under a blanket. So I come into my room and he's under my desk sobbing I mean like hysterically sobbing because I didn't think it through that this is a new person entering our home that Mm. he doesn't know and I I really just didn't even think about it you know I just how you doing welcome you know this is our first time meeting him and I just I realized that I dropped the ball right Mm -hmm. I was the one that like I should have realized this we know that his you know his anxiety with strangers and things like that Mm -hmm. um, is very high and so that's exactly right. We have to like, almost like think ahead, like every yeah. situation, like scan, almost like scan the situation. Right. Said that same thing too. I think, and I think, you know, as, as parents of special needs kiddos, that, that hypervigilance, um, uh, can, can have an effect on our own nervous systems, right. To just constantly be an alert for like things that you're looking for that nobody else in the room would see if they didn't know, kind of how to read the body language or whatever. But honestly, a lot of those times it's, it's a small, um, kind of scanning of the environment that, that, um, helps us to stay on track or allows us to remove ourselves from the situation before we have an explosion. There's a lot of joy in having to be so present and so grateful in like the moment, but there can also be a lot of grief with realizing like, wow, that. Uh, the amount of effort that it takes to do seemingly normal things. So our last part is, can you share a bit about remodeling the rooms where the children have visits? I've been at visits with our fosters in the rooms that you speak of, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. They are not family friendly, generally very dirty, Mm -hmm. you know, ripped furniture. You could just lots of stains, right? And decorating is a huge passion of mine. I love Hobby Lobby. I like, I love it. So you inspired me. I want to get a team and I want to go to our DSS and I want to paint and I want to put like fidget spinners on the wall and I want to have like all the things, right? So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that and how that's going. Yeah. So the effort right now is called Every Child, but certainly a decade ago, there was no name, there was no logo, there was no brand. It really stemmed out of of having a relationship with my certifier. I know that or licensor, you know, who comes to my home to uh, just develop a relationship with me and make sure that my home is safe for a child in foster care. And I simply asked her one day, like, what, you know, what happens when kids are removed and they are waiting in the office? Like what happens? And she's like, nothing really happens. And that kind of led to an idea called welcome boxes. It's all in a love stretch life, but from welcome boxes, it was like, well, now what? And um, folks from child welfare said, can you please come and look at the state of our visitation rooms? And they're like you described, like they are not a place that communicates dignity and worth and value. And in fact, I was very impacted when Jennifer said, 
I grew up visiting my mom in the same office, in the same room where I am now sitting with my child that's being cared for by you, Jelana. It just felt like so stark. And, you know, I think families have such little time together when their kids are in foster care. And you think about like how much life is lived in a 24 hour cycle, seven days a week. And you think about just being able to see your kids for maybe an hour or 90 minutes. Like, wouldn't you want it to be in an environment that's like warm and welcoming and has puzzles with all the pieces and healthy snacks and, you know, cheery murals and not like what you said, like peeling paint off the walls and kind of, there's nothing wrong with secondhand furniture, but when it's used hundreds of times a day, it gets shabby so fast. And, um, so yeah, that is, that is kind of what led to, to, um, starting a, a movement. And part of that movement was doing some hospital, uh, some, some hospitable makeovers for kids in the spaces where they visit with their parents, but also to staff to recognize, you know, these are really hard really, really hard jobs that they have. And to also, you know, create a, a space that can communicate some dignity and worth and value. And I think more than anything, the message from those outside the world of child welfare is we see you, you know, the world, uh, like the responsibility for vulnerable children in our community. So not just be relegated to those with government badges, right? Like we have a place the business community has a, has a place. The faith community has a place. Individual families have a place. And I feel like when we all kind of lean in together with um, some direction of like where we're leaning, then big things can happen. And really a lot of those big things in what is now called every child um, in the state of Oregon, where I live now, started with um, the room makeovers and people feeling empowered to be like, this is the place where, where the, our most vulnerable kids in foster care go. I want to help. And so I think it would be awesome, Angela, if you got some friends together and, and um, did that office, I imagine that would be very welcomed. Jelana, this has been a great time of fellowship, learning, growing, seeing your heart through the love of the children that the Lord has placed with you. You are an inspiration to all of us that we have such power in our words and our actions to break barriers and bring hope to those around us. Thank you for sharing your powerful story of a love-stretched life. Prayer recording, three, two, one. Lord, thank you for Jelana and Luke. I thank you that you put this fire in her to advocate not only for the children you give her, but for their first families as well. It is a glaring light in what could otherwise be a very dark world to see someone lay down their hearts for another. I thank you for her inspiration and that she has stood the test of time. Jelana's face, faith is what shines through, helping us all to lean in and trust just a little bit more. It is in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus, I pray.